Amen. Well, today I, I'm actually going to, uh, we're going to, we've been doing a lot of different things lately. Last week we had the privilege of having an ordination service. Uh, today I'm actually going to start, uh, begin a message, and Pastor Eric is going to come up and, and drive it home. So uh, um, this week actually I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, in the course of time, everybody say, in the course of time. So as I said before, we were gone for four days. We went and visited family, helped out family in Louisiana, still dealing with some of the flood issues that we were there to help them. We visited our brother church there at King's Harvest Fellowship. We were part of what was going on there. And I realized, I told Pastor Eric and, and Jen, I was like, God, we've only been gone for four days, but it really does. If, we do a whole lot of living here in this church. You know, we do a whole lot of seeing each other. And so when I'm gone for a few days, it feels like so much more. It made me start thinking about time in the course of time. What happens in the course of time? You get uh, everything from Hannah, who in the course of time had a baby. She struggled, she fought, she, she wrestled with things, and in the course of time, she ended up having a baby. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you have Absalom, who over the course of time built more of his own kingdom, only which to, that it fell around him. Um, <clears throat> turn to Romans chapter 5 very quickly, and then... Then I'm going to share a few just thoughts that I've had, and then I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Eric. But Romans chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 6. Everybody say, there when you're there. First scripture is always a little bit slower. I get it, right? We're getting our notebooks ready. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. It says this, you see, at just the right time. Everybody say, just the right time. When we were still powerless... Isn't it amazing that God's just the right time is so different than our just the right time? In all these movies, they wait until the, the protagonist, the hero, is, is at his apex of strength before he meets the villain, and, and it's the, the clash, it's the duel. You know what God does? At just the right time, when we were powerless. That's how God does things. He's, he, he just waits until you're powerless, and then that way his glory is magnified all the much more. While we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This idea of God demonstrating his love made me think about a few things. Um, I was going over, uh, I was thinking about it this morning, Pastor Eric's testimony. I believe that Pastor Eric got saved on April 22nd, 1993. Somewhere around there. The, <laughs> the earth was still cooling, I believe. From the time that Pastor Eric was saved until the time he arrived here in Sugarland and began life, began life changing ministries, nine years. It wasn't until another nine years until it was full time where there was not work outside uh, that he had to accomplish before this. So from the time he was saved until a full-time position here, 18 years. Just the right time. Pastor Matt got saved in February of 1992. He came here in March. The P. Rose came here in March of 2004. Came full-time in March of 2013. It's 21 years from the time he was saved until the time he was full-time here at this church. I'm the slacker in the group. I, was, I felt like I was called into ministry. I know that I was called into ministry of July of 1991. 
and my family got to come here and be full-time ministers here, I was ministers uh, full-time elsewhere in 2010, but here just last month in September of 2016. 25 years from the time that I was called until the time of the church that I'm supposed to be a part of and I will give my last breath to build. Amen. Amen. What an incredible thing when we think about it. Let me ask you to think just for a minute about your time. Are you discouraged because uh, you've waited around a whole six months for the Lord to do something? Perhaps you've been really working very hard and it's been a whole two or three years now. Let me encourage you. Let's just look at it from ordination forward. For Pastor Eric, it was 14 years from ordination to full-time service here. For Pastor Matt, he's obviously the most godly of us. It was only 10 years for him. He's definitely the best looking. We don't even know what ethnicity he is, but he's just the best looking. (laughs) For me, it was 16 years. What are you waiting on in the Lord? What do you feel like the Lord has forgotten about you? I can assure you that uh, we are not uh, abnormal in this. I think we're right along the curve. If you study Paul's life, you can argue a few different lengths of time, but from from the time that he was called until the time that he was flourishing in his ministry, at least 14 years, a a minimum. You could argue longer, and he started off, and he already had the entire Older Testament memorized. His starting point was much farther than any of us, and it took him 14 years. I want to focus in on the last five years, 2011 to 2016. Uh, Pastor Eric came on staff in January of 2011, but we're going to use October as a, since we're here in October, we're going to use October as the mark. Since then, we've added two full-time pastors and their families on staff here. The One Association Churches has begun. The Arising Church was launched in September of 2013. We sent the Hutchinsons that way. It is likely that in the next few weeks, we will be ordaining a new and another pastor there for them. There have been elders that have been set in by this body. King's Harvest Church, which many of us came out of, but it relaunched in 2015. On my notes, I have King's Harvest 2015. That's what I call it. It's not the official name, but it is to me. Submission Ministries, Zeke Lamb. He was here last week. He's going to be here. I don't think he'll make another service with us, but he'll be coming back through after being with the Vincents. Launched his ministry in fall of 2013. Covenant Christian Center. Includes Romania, where we now have Dennis Pence, Radu, and Niku leading that body. One Light Ministries just launched this week in Indonesia. New Life Church has started with the Treaster family. And even Life Changing Ministries, while we've all been here, while everything on the surface has been going on, the Lord has shifted many things, and it's basically been a, a revamp of our, of our structure as a church. <laughs> Happens to be seven, seven ministries, by the way. In this five years, from 2011 till now, we've started works. We've combined and joined works in Peru, Romania, Kenya, Turkey, and now Indonesia. There are countless other 
countries that, that have been visited, Honduras, Suriname, Mozambique, South Africa, Germany, India, that was before this past five years and has continued into it, Mexico, started previous to this five years and we still visit Mexico and many, many others that are just too numerous to count at the moment. Look, would you look around just for a second? This group of people. This group of people. We've launched pastors. We've launched missionaries. We've launched churches. We have done by following the Lord's will at just the right time. Um, not to mention countless infillings of the Holy Spirit. Countless miracles. I just want to ask for a show of hands just real quick. If you have received, in this, since you've been in this church, an actual, I'm not talking about just your headache going away. Though we appreciate that from the Lord. You've re- received an actual miracle from the Lord. Raise your hand. Keep your hands up for just a second, please. Just for a second. Would you guys look around? A majority, <laughs> almost a majority of the people here have received an actual miracle from the Lord. At just the right time, God is doing these things. <laughs> Our God is so good to us. I just, want, I just wanted to take a few minutes and kind of recap these things because of this. What God has said, he will accomplish. If God has told you something, then it will come to pass. If you will but stay truth, uh, faithful to his word, he will cause heaven and earth to move. If he needs to stop the sun in the sky, is that too big for our God? <laughs> we say that. But how often do we get discouraged? How often do we come in with small expectations before the God of all the universe who's in our midst? I just wanted to lay these things out in an idea of just at just the right time. At the perfect time, while we're powerless. Oftentimes along the way, there have been many powerless moments where we felt powerless. Lord, what you've called us to is far too big for us. And yet the Lord has come through time and time again. I believe that Pastor Eric mentioned it on Wednesday night during the message. Jennifer had a vision on October 12th, 2011. Which, by the way, it was October 12th, 1997 that Pastor Eric was ordained. I'm sure that's just coincidence. But in October, on October 12th of 2011, there was a vision. And on October 13th, Pastor Eric and I began discussions where he, I think, emailed me first, and then I think we called, hey, wait, I think you need to consider coming and being the pastor of Life-Changing Ministries. And I love Eric, and I would never uh, disagree with my brother, and I just, I think I just went, well, amen. <laughs> I don't think I knew what to say. <laughs> Guys, we're five years away, and the Lord has taken us all over the, the planet, and we're exactly here doing exactly what God laid out. I just wanted to start off with putting things in perspective here and understanding that we serve a big God. Do not get discouraged where you are. Do not lose heart. Dust off your faith. Let's rise up in our hearts because God is doing something here in our midst and he's going to continue to carry on and do things. Amen?
Amen. Y'all doing okay? You know what this October 12th is? It's Yom Kippur. Finishes that five-year vision. That is, uh, it was on a Wednesday when Jen had the vision, and five years later it's a Wednesday. That's unusual as well. It's a lot of fun things happening here. Uh, it's obviously uh, October 9th today, 2016. The part of the message that I want to continue as Pastor Wade discoursed on time is the word maybe tomorrow, right? You ever said, hey, let's, let's grab lunch? Eh, maybe tomorrow. Did it happen tomorrow? Well, maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. Maybe tomorrow is a procrastination term, isn't it? Have you ever done that? Man, I need to do the dishes. Yeah, maybe I'll get to them tomorrow. Maybe I'll cut the grass tomorrow, right? And you put that sign beside your bed, and every day it says the same thing, right? Maybe tomorrow. Well, let us begin in Ruth 2. In the second chapter of Ruth, I want to talk to you about some time-sensitive things. Second chapter of Ruth, say there when you were there. It would be the first verse. Some of these will end up on a screen, some uh, in, in your laps. I would just encourage you that the Holy Word of God is worth examining yourself, right? Uh, we don't lie to you. What's on the screen will match what is in your book if you have a decent Bible. And yet there is something very personal. Yeah, if you've got, a, you know, the 2016 comic book version or, you know, firefighter ladies uh, LBGT uh, edition or something, then it may not say that. If you're sitting out there with a Queen James Bible, throw it away. Uh, but if you've got a decent Bible, it'll match. I just think that you ought to interact with the book that's in your lap. And um, in doing so, I hope you develop a relationship with the Word of God that is personal and powerful and effective. Okay, Ruth, uh, chapter 2. Yes, I am not the uh, etiquette pastor. Never have been, never will be. And if I just set that expectation now, then you won't expect things of me like that. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain before anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, say as it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, say just then. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of the harvesters, whose young woman is that? Now, it just so happened she was in that field, and when she was in the field, just then, Boaz arrived. You know, the New American Standard says, Behold, Boaz arrived. You know, that's, that's great. Like the first time Wade walked in the room with Christy, he said, Behold, I am here. You know? I mean, it's because the text implies that there's a suddenness, an urgency here. Something immediately manifest, right? Consider for a moment that Ruth looked at Naomi and said, mm, Not going out to the field today. I'm going to binge on Netflix. Well, we don't, have a, we don't have a lineage for Christ to come from. This is the uh, seeds of the Davidic dynasty 
right here. Sometimes the timing of God is so precise and so important that nations hang in the balance. For instance, Acts 8, look at verse 29. In Acts 8, 29. Say there when you're there. One of you, two of you. If you're new to uh, life-changing ministries, uh, you should know if I can recall your name, I will use it. So make sure that you're with us, right? Are you there? If I can't recall your name, I just say, hey, you brother on the sixth row, third over. All right. In uh, Acts 8, starting in verse 29, uh, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran. Did the Holy Ghost tell Philip to run? No, he just said go. Philip took the initiative to run. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. Now, let's consider this for a minute. If Philip walked, if Philip had the kind of 40 time that I had in high school, he might not have heard him reading Isaiah. He might have shown up when he had stopped. It was him reading Isaiah that provoked the conversation that leads to this man being baptized. Do you know who he is? He's the first Christian in Ethiopia. The first follower of Yeshua in all of Ethiopia. What would it be like to see the nation? How, t- how dependent was immediate obedience without hesitation? How, how about Acts 10? Turn a couple pages to the right. Acts 10 and verse 19. While Peter was still thinking about the vision. Say still thinking. thinking. You ever get annoyed when you're thinking about something and people are telling you what to do? You know? One of the things that's always encouraged me about Matthew is five people can be telling Matthew what to do and he just, like, he didn't hear them. Like, he's looking right at them and doesn't even acknowledge they're speaking. And uh, I admire that coolness under pressure. He, He refuses to be pushed, right? Well... Peter is in this situation and he's thinking about not something unimportant. I mean, he's not, he's not just thinking about lunch. He's thinking about what the Spirit told him. Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go. Say, get up, get up. And, go. and go. Sometimes you got to get up and you got to go. He said, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them. If Peter had hesitated and those men got discouraged and this didn't happen the Gentile world would not have the baptism in the Holy Ghost. Now, let's let's consider the gravity of the three scriptures that we just covered. If Ruth doesn't go out to the field, we have no Davidic dynasty, no lineage of Jesus Christ. If uh, Philip doesn't run to the chariot, then we have no salvation for the Ethiopian people, which, by the way, opened up all of Africa, okay? At that time, Ethiopia was the African powerhouse, In Acts 10, 19, we would have no Gentiles receiving the baptism in the Holy Ghost if Peter hesitates. How long can you afford to wait on things God has told you to do? You know, sometimes we have the idea that we'll obey when we get to it. I'm of the opinion that slow obedience is no obedience. Now, I'm going to tell you, I have hated for many years. I, I did not grow up as a choir boy. Most of you know that. And I hated to hear pastors use these kind of uh, what I think were sales gimmicks. Like, hey, 
you're not guaranteed tomorrow. You leave here, you could get in a car accident. Basically, you need to get saved now or you could be in hell tomorrow, right? And I heard it all of the time, and it's not that I, I challenged the truth of it. You're going to hear me affirm that many times today. I didn't like it because I thought it was the wrong reason to get saved, right? When I fell in love with Jesus Christ, I simply wanted to please Him. I wanted to please Him with all my heart. I wasn't concerned about going to hell because I recognized I was already in hell right now. And what was going to happen in eternity was just an a extension of the miserable condition I was already in. So I was saved unto life, right? It was not just a fire insurance policy. Well, I've promised always to preach about the things that I'm going through in the week. So in 1,003 messages now that are on our website, you can usually look at that message and determine the pastor who's preaching it, what they were thinking about, what they were doing, what they were counseling, what they were reading that week. We don't pre-plan series that are uh, focus group tested. We don't do those things. We'll leave that to the carnal kingdom, wherever that is. What we do is we preach about the experiences that we're having. And eight days ago, I buried my father. Okay, A few years ago, I buried the man that raised me. But eight days ago, I buried my biological father, and I loved him. Uh, he was a mess. Uh, some of you know he, he was a... He'd walk into our meetings drunk and make comments about the ladies' figures. I mean, it, it, was, it was a problem. Dad was not a good man. And having said that, I didn't love him any less. He's my dad, right? Can you all relate to that? Anybody got a relative that you love? That you love and you recognize not a good person? Okay. Well, so we're in the same boat. In 1993... I, I was born again, and, and I, I went to my father, and I began talking to my father. And I said, hey, look, Jesus Christ spoke to me, you know. He's looking at me kind of cross-eyed. And uh, I said, I, I don't think you understand when I say spoke. I don't mean a quiet inward voice. I, I don't mean I saw a cloud formation and derived it like ink blots or something. I mean his voice knocked me to the ground. Dad, I am a new human being. I've been filled with God's Holy Spirit and things that used to overcome me, I now overcome. I, I can't believe it. The filthy mouth that you have and I had, gone. The sexual temptation that ruled my life, gone. These things, I, I'm a new creature. He said, what do you mean spirit filled? I said, I mean I am praying in other tongues. Listen, we're sitting in a bar and I grabbed his hands. I said, listen. He said, you are a Jimmy Swagger, David Koresh effing moron. That's what he said to me, okay? Now, I could make that sound better than it was, but the truth is that's what he said to me, okay? We had that conversation a couple thousand times in his lifetime. My father lived to be 68 years old. He, he uh, lived with us for many years. He, he attended this church for two full years. Uh, God literally allowed his leg broken, and uh, like he couldn't get away. He needed us to care for him. And it was a chance for the gospel, right? Miss Suzanne is one of the sweetest Christians I've ever met and a powerful prayer warrior. And nearly every time Bobby would show up here, you know, Suzanne, make her way to the front, put her hands on Bobby and prophesy to him and cry. And look, he just had his skin crawled. He had no idea what to do with that. And I loved it. I encouraged it. I, I gave him no help, no buffer, just... Raw gospel, man. And uh, a week before he died, Suzanne came to me right out there in the hallway and said, I have a terrible burden for your father. She was in tears. She did it. Couldn't hardly speak. 
My father was given 25,000 days on this earth. That's 68 years. It's a little over 25,000 days. In his last four days, we sped back from Louisiana, skipped three full nights of sleep, sat with my father in the hospital. Matthew Pero witnessed to him. Wade Sutherland witnessed to him. I witnessed to him. Peyton Parsons witnessed to him. Everybody who came there shared the gospel with him. Most days, Dad just kind of turned his face. He was in his right mind. We are talking. Just kind of turned his face. Polite, congenial, funny, you know, the kind of guy make you laugh. On the Wednesday that he died, and I'm telling you this just as honestly as could be. I told the people at the funeral, it's funny, the elders lined up beside me. The pastors began to position, and I'm like, what are they doing? There's a, a big guy that seemed to want to fight at the funeral. That happens to me everywhere I go. If you want to fight this morning, see Matthew Pero. And, uh, and, uh, and I told the truth at the funeral, just like I'm telling you the truth right now. So on the Wednesday that he dies, I'm speaking to him. And I said, Daddy, I appreciate you taught me to fly a plane. I love that at nine years old I stole your Corvette. You know, I love that. By 11, I was driving uh, your BMW stick ship. Thank you for that, you know. Uh, Daddy, I appreciate that that time I was talking back to mom before she was remarried, you got on a plane and drove here and threatened my life. That, that was good. Daddy, I appreciate those things. In so many ways, you've been a good daddy. But the thing is, is you have disobeyed and been a rebel to the Almighty God your entire life. Your whole life, Dad. You've done whatever you wanted to do. You've ruined people's lives through your broken marriages. Your dependency issues have been crushing to siblings. Dad, you have been a renegade and you are about to go meet your creator. And you won't have a clever quip, Dad. Dad, there will be no... Earth and sky will flee from his presence and you will be left there bare before him. Dad, you understand what I'm saying to you? Unbroken eye contact. I love you. I'm telling you this because very soon you are going to meet him and you are not right with him. You are most certainly damned to hell. I said, Daddy, I've asked you every day, can I pray for you? Will you pray with me? Let's ask God to save your soul. Dad's last words, maybe tomorrow. He died 117 minutes later. Okay? 100, now, that's not how you want the story to end. And I get that. It's not how I wanted the story to end. What are you telling the Lord maybe tomorrow about? And you don't know whether you get tomorrow. This is not a preacher's joke. This is my life, okay? Uh, since the moment I got born again, I'm regathering as much of my family as I can possibly gather because they're all going to hell in a handbasket. Most of them believe they're saved. This is my life, and I'm sharing my life with you for your benefit today. What are you telling the Lord maybe tomorrow about? Slow obedience is no obedience at all. Look, the feeling of being told by your parents. I was kicked out of the house within 30 days of being born again because my church-going family was convicted by my lifestyle. It reminds me of this quote. He baptized me in the criticism of man to inoculate me from the praise of man and free me from the control of man. What are you living in this earth for right now? Are you living for the glory of your peers? 
Do you want to go all the way with God or just a respectable distance in their eyes? Are you interested in playing it safe? Or do you have a reckless abandonment for the gospel? There's a reason. The, the, the halls of the heavens are filled with men like Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot gave his life for the gospel. And a week before he died, he said these words. He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Could you not look at my father's story and say, what a fool? You really could. Now, I understand you're polite, you won't do it. I've always been impolite. It's not a surprise to anybody. How foolish. Wasted 25,000 days. This week, sitting contemplating this, because you're my family and I care deeply about you, the weight of an eternal judgment rested on me. It took my breath away. Now, sometimes when I'm here, words come easily. But I'm just going to be honest. Somebody said to me something about an eternity, and I sat there speechless for a minute. I, I, when, we, when Pastor Wade talks about how long it's been since we were ordained or how long since we are born, that feels a lifetime ago. Friends, that is not scratching the surface of an eternity. Try to wrap your mind around eternity for a minute. To satisfy our theologians here today, I'm going to go law, prophets, writings, Old Testament. Then in the Newer Testament law, that's the Gospels and the book of Acts, I'm going to quote a passage. Then I'm going to take the New Testament book of prophecy, Revelation, quote a passage, and then finish in the epistles just about eternity. And I'm going to do it quickly so that you can make your notes and we'll flash them on the screen. How about Genesis 21:33? This is Abraham at the well of Beersheba. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. And there he called upon the name of the... What's it say? That's Yahweh El Olam. This is the God of eternity. He's not the God of the temporary. Uh, Rob Nohel Bell, wrong, altogether. He's too smart by half. God planted through Abraham an evergreen tree right by a well of the perfect covenant is is what Beersheba means. The well of uh, uh, seven oaths, if you will. Perfect covenant. He planted an evergreen tree so that in season and out of season, year round, there would be a marker that says, this is life-giving water. Okay? He he did that with a unique sacrifice. Uh, I, I don't have time to teach on that today. But a unique sacrifice of lambs that doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. He marked this place. And it's the first time that he calls God the eternal God. Because the weight of eternity had fallen on him. He understood that this time is but a blink compared to what is coming. The enormity of the promises God had given him could not be fulfilled within his own lifetime and he was beginning to understand that it would be through his offspring and that they would rise and rule together. And he calls God uh, Yahweh El Olam. How, How about this one in Daniel 4? Let's go to verse 34. This is a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. And it says... At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an 
eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, say restored, My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because of everything he does is right and all his ways are just. Hear this last part. And those who walk in pride, he is able to. To humble. Nebuchadnezzar went crazy for seven years. And when his sanity was restored, he came to the conclusion there was a God above every God and he was the God of eternity. He said in his last recorded words to the known world, God is able to abase the proud. Wow. So we have an eternal God, a God who takes it personally when you're prideful. Takes it personally when you resist him. Takes it personally when you don't obey him. And perhaps Eric was not the insane one. Perhaps Eric was one who had his sanity restored. Yeah? How about this one? Psalm 16, verse 9. Psalm 16, verse 9. We've moved from the law to the prophets. Now we're in the writings. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. Say path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This psalm expresses the hope in the resurrection and an eternal situation that is pleasurable in every way. Where you uh, are eating the delicacies of God, so to speak. God is eternal, and he made you to be eternal. We're not going to turn to Romans 9, 22, but it says with God with great patience, God bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared or fitted for destruction. I, I, I don't want to teach it today, but I want to tell you, you are going to live in a body that will never die, righteous or unrighteous. The righteous one is, is designed in a way that glorifies God. The one fitted for destruction is designed in a way that it doesn't perish even in the lake of fire for an eternity. Now, you can get used to hearing things like that. It can become trite Sunday school kind of behavior, right? Like, we're going to heaven's gates, hell's flames. When the reality of that sets in on you, When somebody that you love, eyes close, the last breath leaves their body, and you recognize that they're now standing before a king that they have defied their entire life. Well, let's just for a moment picture it was the one you love the most. How do you feel about that? What if it's your son, your daughter? Do you care? If it's your child, do you care? Tell me, yes, pastor, I care, or no, pastor, I don't. If you don't care, then be a man, woman, stand up, tell me. I can handle it. 
Do you care? Don't you think he cares about those that are called to be his sons and daughters all over the world? How can we stand by while they go to hell? I couldn't stand by while my father went to hell. How can we stand by while they go to hell? How could we do it? See, if you grasp eternity, obedience becomes instantaneous. And eternal perspective changes everything. You don't have time to waste precisely because you don't know how much time you have. You only know the last thing that he told you to do. How about Matthew 25, 46? They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Is that pretty succinct? This is a separation of the sheep and goats. Both groups believe that they belong to the shepherd. Both groups think that they are saved. They would fit within what you think of as the church. Both groups do. And one did the works that God asked them to do, and the other did not do the works that God asked them to do. And the ones that did not do, say did not do. The ones that did not do went into an eternal punishment, and the ones who did do what the Lord told them to, they went to an eternal life. Eternal is eternal. No, no amount of linguistics manipulation will make that word mean anything other than everlasting, eternal. Have you been tricked into believing that because you agree with a doctrinal statement that you are safe? Christian, do you sit in this room believing that because you had an experience with God, you can now go your own way and God is bound to save you? Wow, you better be right. That's not the reading that I have from looking at this word. How about Revelation 14, 6 through 7? Get a New Testament prophet in there. This morning I'm standing here preaching as a dead man, preaching to men that are either in condemnation or have died and given their lives to Christ. There's only two groups in here. So forgive me if I have absolutely nothing to fear. I hope to offend all of you. Those that are close to me, those that are not so close to me, I hope to be equally offensive because the cross of Christ is offensive. I, I came back from a trip to Africa where a man told me, looked me right in the eye and said, I just want people to be comfortable. I do not want people to be comfortable. I, I have found that that comfort will lull you to sleep. That a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands and your path will be filled with briars and poverty, spiritually speaking, will overcome you. I actually believe, like Leonard Ravenhill, that the God of all comfort comes to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And I'm going to ask you this morning, which are you? Do you sit here comfortable or are you afflicted in your soul at the thought of eternity? Are you weeping over the lost? Did you stop praying? For your relatives, did you give up on them? Revelation 14, 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Friends, when the hour of judgment comes and you don't know at what hour that is, the consequences are Eternal. That is an overwhelming thought. How many of you think a 10-year prison sentence is long? If you don't think a 10-year prison sentence is long, it's because you've not spent enough time in jail. Come do prison ministry with us. 
When those doors close, even when you know you're going to get out, I won't call you out, but there's a few of you in here that like me, you know how cold that can be. Yeah? And eternity is an incredible, incomprehensible thing. Let's go to 1 Timothy 6, 12. Fight the good fight. Many of you know that in Greek, this particular passage actually says, uh, agon, agonizome, the uh, fight or agonize the good agony of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It is an agonizing battle to stay in the will of God. To fight. You know, it was hard for me to talk to my father that day. Do you know how relieved I am that I at least did that? Can you imagine what the weight on me would be today if I did not do that? Now, I've preached funerals where people got saved. That's pretty common for me, actually. I've also preached funerals where I was punched in the face, and by a woman, no less, right? Uh, But what you want to do is you want to have a clean conscience that you have done what God called you to do are you agonizing over the will of god or did you just write it off you excused it you proclaimed yourself already innocent even though you never completed the task he gave you to do you know john 4 said this is my food to do the work of him who sent me and hear this last part finish his work you know to put on your armor and to take it off when the battle is over are two different things have you begun a good work but you have not yet Finished your good work? Don't rest, Christian. Don't sit on your laurels. Don't praise your blessed assurance. It will not work. The king of the universe requires of you to die daily. Have you died even this week? This month? Much less daily. I know. These days everybody wants to go to a church where they feel good about themselves. We'll get to that in a minute. Maybe we'll get to that now. I'm trying to temper my thoughts. It's easy when we're thinking about these kind of scriptures for the Christian to think to themselves, hey man, I'm already saved. So let me ask you, how pure is your devotion? How full are your branches of eternal fruit that glorifies the Father? Anybody in here got your branches breaking from all of the fruit that you've born? Anybody in here so full of disciples, 30, 60, and 100 fold, that you can sit here and breathe secure and say, I'm going to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Or have you hung all of your hopes on a single experience that you had? Be an interesting thing when we think about it. I like to go to those mega monstrosities, the kingdom of comfort. The city-sized circus churches so that we can hide in them. So that we can show up and hear something that is encouraging and then go out and live any way that we want to. There's a select few in every one of those churches that are amazing, that are spirit-filled. But you have to ask the question. If there is somebody, a pastor, pastors on staff who are spirit-filled, If there's somebody that we all enjoy and say, oh man, nobody preaches like this guy. And then there are thousands of others. 
Do we have a man that enjoys being a giant among midgets? Why in the thousands? Is there nobody that can do what he does? Why is that? Is that biblical Christianity? Or did Jesus take 12 ordinary men and teach them to do exactly what he did? You know, Jesus' shadow never healed anybody, but Peter's did. Jesus never laid hands on a handkerchief and healed someone, but Paul did. The mark of the gospel was that it excelled in the generations, not was top down. Big pastor, little people. So why do the people put up with it? It's a good question, don't you think? You know, Ravenhill once famously said that if Jesus preached the gospel that was being preached today, they never would have crucified him. I would add to that. They would have asked Jesus to preside in prayer over John the Baptist, oh, not John the Baptist, over Herod's birthday party where the woman danced. Just like a famous pastor in this town prayed over Anise Parker where she was set in as Houston's first homosexual mayor. Don't tell me we don't have a different gospel. We need to be careful, saints. He said, well, maybe tomorrow I'll get a little more serious about it. Is there a time in your life that you were more fired up for Jesus than you are right now? Is there a moment where you felt like you had a better grasp of the word? A moment where you felt like then I was in the center of God's will and now, you know, I mean, you know, I hope to get back there. You know what that's called? Let's not sugarcoat it. You are backslidden. If today is not the apex of your spiritual walk, then you're not moving forward You are resting on something that happened in the past. You show me which scripture leads you to believe that you can live like that and be pleasing to the king. What does it mean when Peter says ever increasing measure? Does that mean I got so much in the beginning that now I can coast on it for a while? Well, you try that and see how it works. I'm going to suggest to you that there are a couple things that I think are plaguing us. But before I do it, I want to read you What fell out of my Bible this morning. This is, I've I've kept scripture cards my entire life. Okay? Since I got born again. Now maybe you're strong enough to not need the word of God with you everywhere you go at all times. But I'm a man that since I was 18 years old, have never let myself be out of hand's reach of a Bible, the scriptures I was contemplating, the notebooks I was writing, ever. You never see me at any time. You... If I'm roofing a house, my Bible is within hand's reach. If I came to help you with your plumbing project, my Bible is in hand's reach. You have never seen me at any time without it. And you know what? God bless you, those of you that are reading it on your cell phone. You're also playing Candy Crush on your cell phone. You're also doing other things on your cell phone. You know the only thing I do with my Bible? I learn about the living God. So I'm I'm just going to tell you, I do not accept your electronic version. You can use it. That's fantastic. Not picking on you for it. I am picking on you a little bit for it. But I'm telling you, there is a reason. If I go into a bar to talk with somebody and, oh, that scares you, I know. It doesn't scare me at all. Not even a little bit. I bring my Bible. I set it on the bar. If I go to a Muslim hookah bar, I bring my Bible and I set it on the table. Is it true, Ibrahim? God is my witness everywhere that I go. I also don't mind saying Muhammad was a pedophile. The Quran is satanic. Islam is evil. I don't mind saying it anywhere at any time because I belong to the Lord and the truth is the truth. Okay? When we're talking about Scripture, I pick up a Bible yesterday. 
at a time when I'm asking the Lord, Lord, this uh, five-year thing's closing in. Your will be done. I pick up my Bible. This falls out, right? I hadn't seen it in I don't know how many years, five, six years, something like that, because it's a Bible that it's not my daily carry. It's my backup. It's my throwaway, right? It's Ezekiel 44, 15 through 16. But the priest, oh, I'll give you a minute to get here. While, while you're getting there, to Ezekiel 44, 15 through 16, let me tell you that Aaron had two, son, two uh, sons that were priests. He had three, but we're going to talk about two. Uh, the first one is Eleazar. He's the oldest. Eleazar is where the high priest came from. Eleazar basically means God is my help, right? And he had a second one, Ithamar. It's pronounced a little differently in Hebrew, but that's how we say it, okay? Ithamar. And so the high priest that succeeded Aaron was Eleazar. And as time went on, Eleazar was the line of high priest. And sometime during the time period of the judges, it switched to Ithamar. And we don't know why. And for instance, Eli was of the line of Ithamar. Not the firstborn. He, he was uh, further down the line. And what happens then is all the way to the time period of David, we have high priests descending from Ithamar. And in David's day, it was a guy named Abithar. And Abithar is also in the scripture, just to make it a little more complicated, sometimes called the Himalek. Now, he had a little bit of a problem. He presided over the ark. He uh, ministered in the temple. And then the descendant of Eleazar, the, the, I would call, are you the truer line, ministered out at Shiloh at the tent. Okay? And uh, when... Saul was uh, still in power and David was coming to power. The priests were in a really awkward position because David gets control of the southern kingdom. But some of the priests have been loyal to Saul and some have been loyal to David. One priest stood up above all of the others. His name was Zadok. Zadok was of the line of Eleazar. It was kind of a return to the real priesthood. And Zadok's name means righteousness, by the way. And Zadok was there incited with David during Absalom's rebellion. He sided with David uh, when Adonijah tried to take the throne from Solomon. Zadok was there and anointed Solomon as the successor. Zadok stood when all of the other priests wavered. So now that takes us forward in time to Ezekiel where we're going to reference the priestly line of Zadok. You ready for it? But the priests who are Levites and descendants of Zadok and who faithfully carried out the duties of my sanctuary when the Israelites went astray from me are to come near to minister before me. They are to stand before me to offer sacrifices of fat and blood, declares the sovereign Lord. They alone are to enter my sanctuary. They alone are to come near my table to minister before me and perform my service. Now, that's kind of a complicated sentence structure. And I don't want to spend a bunch of time on it, but let me help you with that. And then you can meditate on it. There were lots of Levites. Not all the Levites were priests. But among the Levites that were priests, we had several different clans. Those that descended from Eleazar, those from Ithamar. We even had some from Phinehas. Okay, we had lots of priests. There was only one clan that would be allowed to go into the presence of God ever again. Do you know what he says the others can do? They can hang out in my sanctuary and they can minister to people, but they cannot 
come and minister to me. God effectively says, those who held me dear the whole time and didn't waver, I will hold very dear to me in my presence. But those that treated me with contempt and did not hold me as close as dear, I will let them continue as priests, but they can't come near me. They can only come near the people. Can you imagine if First Peter was applied to you and you said, Hey, we're a holy nation. We're a holy priesthood. Amen. We're kind of like Levites. And God looked at you and said, Fine, but you can't come near me. I'll let you do humanitarian work. I'll let you do good things. You can participate in World Cup if you want to. But you will not come near me. How would you feel about that? Anybody be offended with it? Anybody be upset? We settle for it every Sunday in churches all over uh, this country. We are content to come forward and be entertained. We are content to come forward and exalt some leader. We're content to stand in a position where nobody is being equipped to do what the man at the center of the stage is doing and we support it with our applause. You know why? Because it requires nothing of you. Just sit. One thing about this congregation, in the last five years, I would say six church plants are pretty strong. In five years, six plants. One thing about this little congregation, it has sent ministers to more than 30 countries in the last five years. We have ongoing works on each continent that is not a frozen tundra. I would say that's pretty active. And I'm still concerned. I'm concerned because standing right here, I can see things that you can't see about yourselves. And I want to warn you. You cannot ride on yesterday's experience. You cannot say that you are safe because at one time you were very close to the Lord. The Levites who administered in the presence of God so offended God that he said, you can never do it again. The only ones that I'm going to let come into my presence are the priest of Zadok. Oh, man, I want to be a Zadokite. Yeah? On that subject, let's cover a couple things. Let's go to Judges 17. You still with me? In Judges 17, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. I like Columbus. I discovered it and landed on it. In Judges 17, tell me that this is not a problem with us Levites. 17, chapter, verse 10. Then Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. Micah's Levite, who shamelessly has no name in this story. Micah's Levite. He agreed to serve God for shekels and shirts. He agreed that he could be hired. And be controlled by a single man rather than work for God. He traded the offerings of all of Israel in the support of all of Israel for the man who is faithful and stands before the Lord. He traded that 
for the sure paycheck of Micah's house. Micah's house had an idol in it, but that's not a problem. Micah's house had an ephod in it that was not ordained of God, but that's not a problem. He made the adjustment. He, he could whittle down the full gospel to about a one-eighth gospel so that the people would stay comfortable. I mean, and after all, he himself was spirit-filled. So what if not every... I mean, maybe it's kind of like aristocracy. Maybe this is just for a few of us that are better than you. What else could you conclude? If you look on a stage and you see five spirit-filled people and you look out and there's 5,000 people, 95% of whom have never prophesied, have never spoken in other tongues, never seen a miraculous world, what else could you conclude? Micah's Levite sold out the glory of the gospel for a steady paycheck. Now, let's, let's see how else he moves forward. Here, his problem is profit. You know, I've heard from more Christians, I have to make a living somehow. You know, this pastor, in my entire life, and I've been saved longer than I was alive before I was saved, I have never agreed to miss a Sunday service, ever, for work. Not for any amount of money. Never. I will not do it. And it's not because Sunday's the Sabbath. It's not. It's because if you don't draw a line as something is holy and untouchable in your life, some area that you will not bow the knee, then how do you know that you are not serving money instead of God? Do you know why this nation... (laughs) I'm not going to go down the political road. They're both immoral, terrible people. But do you know why this nation, evangelicals can lift up and say, Trump is God's answer? Do you know why they can do it? Because he serves the same God they do. Money. That's why. I'm just going to tell you my allegiance is to the gospel. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat first. I'm not white before I'm a Christian. If you're sitting out here, you better not be white or black before you're a Christian. You better not be Hispanic or Egyptian before you're a Christian. We need to wake up. Our loyalties lie to the standard of God. That's where they lie. Don't let other people create a problem in what is beautiful. Micah had sold out the gospel by hiring a Levite. And the Levite was all too willing to be hired. Now let's go to the 18th chapter and the 18th verse. These are some Danites. And they come to the same house. When these men went into Micah's house and took the carved image and the ephod and the other household gods and the cast idol, the priest said to them, what are you doing? All right, so some Danites, about 600 of them, they show up at Micah's house and they overrun the house and they go in and they take the idol, they take the ephod, right? It's a corporate takeover. So, so whatever church in this area has marketed to everybody and all of those things, they decide they want this building, right? And they come in. And they take this pulpit and everything else, and they're standing right here. Can you imagine if I responded like this? Hey, guys, what are y'all doing? They answered him, be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe or a clan in Israel as a priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was glad. 
He took the ephod, the other household gods, and carved images and went along with the people. Do you see how fickle his loyalties were? He was working for a paycheck. So now when he's offered a little prestige and a little better deal, he takes it immediately. What happened to one man giving his life to one congregation for his entire life? What happened to the guy that would be there when your children were born, when you were moving into your house and bury you when you were gone? What happened to the eternal covenant that is between God and man and between man and man? When did this become fee for service for higher profits? See, I'm not. Pastor Wade is not. Pastor Matthew is not. This is why you might be able to trust what we're saying, but I still think you should check the word for yourself. What we see in Micah's Levite is that he was corrupted by profit. Good thing none of that's going on now. That he was corrupted by prestige. Good thing none of that is going on now. Have you sold out the gospel for your job? Has the Lord told you, bumped you, urged you to share the gospel and you just thought, I don't want to lose my job. How will I feed my family? Let's just say what you are, faithless. You're a coward. And cowards can't enter the kingdom. I've heard more excuses here recently about why you cannot do what the Bible says. And what it amounts to is fear is ruling over the people. It's not faith, it's fear. Now, you can go to one of the circus churches and they will just tell you you're a champion right where you sit. But what happens if you're a damned champion? What happens if you're not guaranteed tomorrow and the last thing you heard was something that Oprah Winfrey would agree with? How about Luke 17? You still love me? Remember you said that. I can't believe you're walking out on me, Jen. I'll forgive you, though. In Luke 17, you got to be married for more than 23 years to do that. I'm just telling you, young guys... Y'all don't got enough game for that yet. We, we've been around. In Luke 17, the word says follow me as I follow Christ. It does not say follow me as I get off the path from Christ. Uh, Luke 17 and verse 12. What I'm saying is what I just did was not wise. That's, that's all I'm saying. Okay. Luke 17 and verse 12. As he was going into a village, ten men, say ten men. Ten men. This is not ten like T-I-N. This is like the number after nine. Right? Ten of them. Not nine, not eleven. Ten. As he was going into the village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. They stand at a distance because it is socially unacceptable and a violation of the law for them to get close. But I'm not going to preach about their leprosy today. I'm just saying, do you remember when you had such respect for God that you barely would crawl into a service holding your head up? You didn't know if you could touch a Bible and it would be okay. That was holy and you knew that you were unholy. Do you remember when you had that kind of reverence for the Lord? They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, say, as they went, It's almost like you have to put actions to what you say you believe. As they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Not just a leper, 
but a Samaritan leper. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? Maybe profit was not your particular problem. Maybe prestige is not. I'm not sure I believe you. I've seen the labels on your clothes. But maybe it's not. Did you get what you wanted from the Lord? He cleansed you. And now you do not return to Him for obedience daily. You're in the 90%, not the 10. Hey man, all I know is I'm saved. I'll be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. No, you'll be a doorstop on the wrong side of hell. That's what you'll be. Judge not. Twist not scripture, lest you be Satan. How about that? The idea that you just get saved and, hey man, I'm saved. Pastor, why are you talking to me about the weight of eternity? I'm, I'm secure. You may not be as secure as you think you are. What do you do? How does that leper face Jesus five years later? Does he walk in and say, hey, I know I'm going to get a well done in, in, in my good and faithful servant. I know it, I know it, I know it. Because, because pastor told me I'm going to. But he never returned to Jesus. He never showed his thankfulness through his daily obedience. He never proved out the lordship that he professed in his daily life. What do you think happens to a man like that? Doesn't that describe the vast majority of Christians? I'm going to ask, does it des- describe the vast majority of Christians? What makes you sure that you're not in that vast majority? You know, one thing that I learned from the private school days... Little Johnny, little Susie, they're not a bad kid. I know they're killing puppies and burning down buildings, but they're not a bad kid. They, you, you don't, they're, they're not bad. They're just in with the wrong crowd. Well, what if they are the wrong crowd? See, we're sure that most Christians are the nine lepers, not the one. How sure are you that you are not one of the nine lepers? Oh, pastor, I go to a fired-up church, I know. My friends and I started it. Can I tell you that's not enough? Pastor, three years ago I was set ablaze for the Lord. Yeah, I know. Can I tell you that's not enough? Yesterday this leper was healed. But today he's not there. You know how many people saw Jesus resurrected walking around in the 40 days between uh, Passover and Pentecost? It's 50 days, but the 40 days that he was on the earth there. 500. You know how many were waiting in the upper room? 120. You know what that meant? 380 didn't take the time to pray and seek him about Pentecost. I would suggest that the statistics have fallen, not, not, not gotten better. Let me ask you. Do you sit in here and you know the baptism of the Holy Ghost is right? But among your respectable Christian friends, you don't push the baptism of the Holy Ghost because you don't want to be offensive? To which of the apostles did Jesus say, you know what, if you'd like to, hang out in Jerusalem. You'll, you'll get an optional add-on, like a sunroof or foam on top of your latte. To which one did he say that? He told them, do not, do not leave Jerusalem until you receive what my Father has promised. You must be clothed with power. Well, I can have the Holy Ghost and I don't have to do all of those things y'all do. I never met anybody consistently that I thought was filled with the Holy Ghost that did not do the things that describe as manifestations of the Holy Ghost. 
It's like saying, I've got the spirit of Elvis Presley. I can't sing. I can't dance. I don't wear leisure suits. And I got no hair. But I got the spirit of Elvis Presley. Really, what gives you the impression you have the spirit of Elvis Presley? Well, I feel like in my heart I do. Would you believe that person was possessed by Elvis? Why do you believe someone is possessed by the Holy Ghost and they show no outward manifestations of the Holy Ghost? Because it makes it easier on you if you lessen the standard for them. It means it's easier for you. Are you a leper? Did you get what you want in salvation or you think you did? And that's the place you were last obedient, at an altar somewhere. How about Matthew 25, 26? Remember, you said you loved me. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. Wow, that's an incredible thing. I want you to consider this parable for a minute because you may have excused yourself from it every time you've heard it. Number one, it is spoken to a people who believe that they are saved. They are covered under the Passover lamb's blood. They are covered on the day of atonement. They're adopted as sons of God as their ancestors left uh, Israel. They believe they're as saved as you believe that you are saved. And Jesus speaks to them. And in Matthew 25, not only does he share the separation of the sheep and goats, another parable to the saved, but he says, hey, if a landowner put on deposit with you something and some of the men gained an increase, but one of them did nothing with what they were given, what do you think will happen? And Jesus Christ called that man a wicked and lazy servant. So let me ask real quick, with what he's given you, what have you done with it? Don't tell me how you feel about it. Don't tell me the way in which your heart swells when you think about all that he's done for you. That's great. You can count these talents. What have you done with what he put on deposit with you? Pastor, that's a hard word. No, it's just the word. It's, it's, it's not hard. It is actually the plain reading of this text. So can you say, hey, I'm making Christians everywhere I go. Disciples. And you say, look, my life displays daily obedience. I'm planting seeds Everywhere. I, I'm a brag on a young man in the church. I went to work with him. From the first appointment in the day to the last appointment in the day. And then the stops along the way, one of which was a humidor. You want to find the way to my heart? Take me to a humidor. Every place that the young man went, every single one, he prayed with people, he opened his Bible, he read to them. 
They asked him where he went to church. He didn't have to go to them and say, what you should do is go to my church. They saw something in him that they don't see on a regular basis. One poor little couple was so shaken up as we prayed with them. Collect a big check for painting their house, right? And, and pray with them. And while we're praying with them, they are so shaken up, they can't talk anymore. You know why? Their pastor is Micah's Levite. That's why. He preaches for a prophet. He tells them only what he thinks they want to hear. And he has no idea their soul is starving for more. So God has to send a young man in the course of daily business into their home and say, hey, <clears throat> there's an awful lot more than you're being told. You have raised up for yourself somebody who's lying to you and he's doing it for the money that you give him. How long you been saved? Both of them, many decades. Can you name 10 scriptures? We can't name two scriptures. I see that you have Bibles sitting out there. Do you read those? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we read our devotional every morning. Amen. How many scriptures is in your devotional? Well, there's one scripture at the top and five paragraphs after it. You beginning to see your problem yet, saints? Let me ask you, if everything that you knew about God had to be written down, you might be able to fill notebooks, but if you could only write in that notebook what God had specifically said to you, how, how full would your pages be? Are you settling for people's sloppy seconds? Are you living off of somebody's revelation 300 years ago? Or are you interacting with this word in a way that is producing such radical change in you, people around you can't help but take notice? Because the authentic kind of Christianity, it forced people to a decision. It was a collision with God. Anytime these men went anywhere, they stirred up the area that they went in. Demons got mad and sinners got saved. Everywhere they went. Who told you you had to play so nice? Hmm? By the way, should, should those satanic followers of a pedophile prophet show more devotion to their wicked, idolatrous, devilish moon god than we show to the true Messiah? Who told you you had to be sedate? Would the gospel have ever gotten to you if it was entrusted to you in the first century? In other words, if you switched places, if you had to face the mighty imperial Rome, if you were in the days of the great persecution and the first deposit of the gospel had gotten to you, what in your life shows that you would have sent it to the nation? Isn't that a fair question? Isn't that the kind of thing you'd like to hear before tomorrow? Because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. My father said to me, maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow came for me. It did not come for him. With me to 2 Samuel 14. Have you had enough of me? I'm very excited. There is a man in the congregation today that uh, told me on Wednesday, man, I could, listen, uh, I could listen to that for three hours. And I'm just going to tell you the truth. I've heard that kind of stuff so many times from people I never saw again. I just smiled and said, oh, you know, thank you. That's probably a surefire sign that we'll never see him again. 
And, and he came today, so I'm going to put it to the test. In 2 Samuel 14, so that I don't have to read this passage, the whole thing, Absalom has killed Amnon. Amnon is Absalom's brother. Amnon raped his sister. Somebody say that's sick. sick. See, you are capable of speaking in church. Little feedback's helpful every now and then. He raped his sister. And so the brother that shared the same mother with the sister is pretty upset. And his name's Absalom. And he kills his brother, Amnon. Absalom kills Amnon. This sets David into a, a, a small tizzy. And Absalom has to flee for his life. He's banished. When he's banished, Joab, for some reason, wants Absalom to come back. So he tricks David by putting his words in a woman's mouth. And, uh, and it's another parable situation. It's kind of funny. Uh, David had recently been tricked by Nathan, you know, about a guy who had only uh, one sheep, you know. And so this time David's listening to this woman talk and he goes, look, let me stop you. Correct me if I'm wrong, but do I hear Joab's words in your mouth? And she says, my Lord, you're an angel of God. I can't hide from you. (laughs) And David looks at Joab, you know. (laughs) Uh, David was not about to walk into that trap again. But he sees the wisdom in what is said, right? And uh, he decides to bring Absalom back. Can you imagine how happy you are if you're Absalom? You don't have to live outside the city anymore. You get to come back. But David confines him to his house. He says, you've got to live there two years. We're going to pick up in that story, uh, which is in 2 Samuel 14, in verse 28. Absalom lived for two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king. But Joab refused to come to him, so he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Look, Absalom's getting nervous. He wants to see his daddy. He wants to see the king. He asks, hey, Joab, Joab, come, come here. We'll talk, man. After all, Joab was the way that he got from outside the city back in the city. But Joab ignores him once. Then Joab ignores him a second time. Absalom's a pretty shrewd guy. Watch what he does. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, this is Absalom speaking, Look, Joab's field is next to mine, and there's barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you. Come here so I can send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Jeshur? It would have been better if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. Say that with me. I want to see the king's face. And if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. He wants to get into the presence of God or die trying. When the Lord is calling you, does he have to call a second time? Has he called you? And you stayed in your house because seeking his face was just not that important to you. Did he call you a second time? Y'all smell that? You smell that? There's barley on fire in here. Is the Lord lighting your life on fire? Trying, trying to get your attention. Saying you don't come when I call you. You don't do it. 
So I'm going to light your fields on fire until you learn to seek my face because I will do whatever it takes to get your attention until, of course, there's tomorrow. What does he have to do to get your attention? Do you expect your children to come when he calls? Hmm? I do. Are you so fascinated with the accumulation of shekels and shirts that you don't have time for the king when he calls you? Are you so fascinated with uh, your prestigious peer group, the Danites, that would sell you out in a minute that you don't have time for the king of kings? Have you fallen in with the nine lepers that say, well, praise God, I, I know I'm saved. No reason for me to go revisit all that again. I, I know I'm saved. I sit here no longer a leper, so I'm, I'm good to go. No, you might be the guiltiest man in the room because after having tasted of the age to come, you're drinking of the rain of heaven, but you are producing thorns and not fruit. Has he lit your field on fire? You sit here this morning and you're doing your very best to give yourself a peace of mind, trying to insulate yourself from the searing conviction of the Holy Ghost that says slow obedience is no obedience. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. How many of you had planned to put something into practice and then you planned to do it again and you planned to do it again and now years have gone by and you never did the very thing that you made so many plans for. I was inspired by missionary stories when I was first born again. Still very inspired by missionary stories. I had no idea I would be a pastor. I wanted, like the books that Don Richardson wrote, to go to the headhunter cannibal tribes. With all my heart, that's what I wanted to do. I had no idea that I'd be called to a more dangerous profession. The only thing that is more commonly eaten after a service than fried chicken is the preacher of that Sunday service. You may not like what I'm saying, and I understand that. I'm not sure I like it either. But I'm going to tell you the truth. It is the Word. And there is a day where just like my father, you will stand and give an account for what you have heard today. You've become more accountable during this last hour, not less. More. What are you going to do with that? I want to run through a few passages and we're going to close. The first is John 9, 4. As long as it's day. You, I rarely lie when I look at you. You can write it and you can look at me. I, I, I won't lie to you while we preach. I'll tell you stories in my house. All of you are always invited to my house, by the way, which is now the Sutherland's house, and I'm sure they appreciate that I'm inviting all of you every Sunday. And not just every Sunday, every day. In fact, we reserve exactly one time where you are not welcome to come by. And that is Monday, uh, 8 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. That, that time we take just to think about the good things the Lord is doing and get ready to teach a three-and-a-half-hour Bible study that evening that people stay to till 2 in the morning. But we, we want you to interact with us. We do not live in gated communities with weird secret service agents uh, in ugly coats shielding you from us. And we don't and never will for a reason. Number one, I think it's idolatrous. Number two, I think it's cowardice. Can you tell that I am not very excited about the state of Christendom today? 
I don't, I'm not even sure it's Christendom. Paul told us to watch out for deceiving spirits, and I think we've identified a few. We want you to interact with us because we want you to see something. What John 9, 4 says, as long as it is day, we must do the work. Say, do the work. Do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. There will be a time that you can no longer work for the king. It's, it, it could happen while you're still alive. Like those priests that were not in the tribe of uh, the, the clan of Zadok. No matter what they did, they could not go minister to the Lord anymore. He would not let it. They had become unacceptable to him. I have met people that I do not believe the Holy Ghost will ever draw to salvation. They have pushed things that far. Now, it's not up to me. It's up to the Holy Ghost. But I can tell you, I have stood over hospital beds and watched men die that there was zero drawing of the Holy Spirit. Even if you knew the day on which you were going to die, you don't have any idea whether you'll be conscious of God on that day. You can sear your conscience as with a hot iron so that you have no idea the peril that is standing at your door. People sit in church damned every single week around the world. And you know what they all say? They're doing just fine with the Lord. Some of them have learned the right evangelical language. They can say, I'm born again. They can quote the Roman road to salvation, but what they cannot do is show you the fruit of their life that proves their deeds. This has been going on since Paul Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Talkative, could discuss everything with Pilgrim along the road. He could talk as a competent conversant, but he could not demonstrate in his own life the truth of what he was saying. Apparently, this has been a problem since the dawn of man. How about Revelation 12, 12? This is, uh, by the way, New Testament law, New Testament prophet, New Testament writing, as we come towards our close. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows... What does he know, saints? What's it say? He knows that what? Are you more deceived than the devil? He knows his time is short, but you act like you have unlimited time to do the will of God. He knows that he must do his all to take his stand right now for wickedness because his reign is limited. Do you live in a way that shows you believe your life is limited? How limited? If I say to you that you got 20 years, you'll live a certain way. If I say to you that you have 10, you'll live yet another way. What if we break it all the way down to this is the last week of your life? What would you do that is different? The devil knows his time is short, but people sit in the body of Christ and act like they can obey whenever they want to. Do you really think that you can get away with that? How about Romans 13, 11? Still smell burning barley. Lives on fire out there. Barley's useful for a lot of good things. It was never supposed to start fires. Romans 13, 11. And do this understanding the present time. What is Paul commanding the church at Rome to do? Understand the present 
time. Is there anybody in here that feels like, man, things are sliding towards those last days? Anybody feels that way? Anybody feel a gravitational shift going on? Like, my goodness, things have escalated quickly, right? I mean, you thought it was bad from 1960 to 1970. We've hit a special kind of record right here. Is, am I the only one who feels that way? Even lost people I meet have that kind of impending sense of, it's starting to get real. I mean, our little affluent bubble might pop here soon. Did you know that if you remove the Texas economy from the United States economy, the United States is on par with Mexico? There's a secession argument, but I'm not making it. it what I'm saying is, the life that you now live that enables you to obey when you want to without immediate consequence, what are you going to do if that comes to an end? What if Trump is not the uh, Cyrus that people are prophesying that he is? What if Hillary? What if? Oh, I don't know. We'll worry about that tomorrow, just like my dad did. We'll take care of that tomorrow. Just like my dad did. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The goal is to wake up because salvation is at hand. Do you know what comes with salvation? Retribution for those who are disobedient. How many of you love the book of Obadiah? You could like say, right now, man, I can give you my favorite verse from Obadiah. Look at that, 200 people in that one hand. Look, you can read Obadiah in the time that it takes my family to pray after a meal, right? You can read the book. You tell me what a plain reading of Obadiah says. Because the day of the Lord is coming and he will repay every person according to what their deeds deserve. See, your faith was always supposed to compel you towards deeds. Faith produces deeds. Deeds are not always the evidence of faith, right? But faith, if it is faith, always produces deeds. What does the work product of your life look like? We're going to close in Acts 26. reading this the morning that I was scraping together the money to bury my father and uh, particularly tough time and not just because of the emotional things that were at hand but the thing is is I really I love the Lord a lot more than I love any of you uh, and certainly a lot more than than I love the family that has been I love the Lord more than I love all of you. And so it's an interesting position because Psalm 45 says to, uh, to hate evil and love righteousness. Hosea says the same thing. The book of Hebrews says the same thing. Hebrews goes on to say without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Not even those of you who feel very secure. Without holiness, nobody gets it. And so I'm standing there in a position where I'm going to bury my earthly father and I know without any question, he's damned. Now, that offends you. You don't like it. Who made me the judge? 
You make the decision about your father. I'm talking about mine. You didn't know him like I did. And it's not because I don't love him or I'm showing him disrespect. I'm speaking the truth about his life. I'm burying my father and I know he's damned. And I want to cry with my outer man. And yet my inner man cries, just and true are your judgments, right in everything you do. A faithful God who does no wrong. Lord, glorify your name. This man spent 68 years glorifying his name. Today, I choose to glorify your name. And those of you that were there said a lot of things. But I chose to glorify my heavenly father's name that day. I don't think any of my family appreciated it. And I don't care. I've been baptized in their criticism a long time. I'm inoculated from their praise and free from their control. I will not be Micah's Levite. You hear me? You can't buy me off. You can't intimidate me back. You can't shut me up. I'm not going to let up. I'm not going to back up. You know where surety comes from? You, you want to know the truth about where surety comes from? When you can say, I've done the will of God. You're about as secure as you can say, I am presently doing the will of God. And if you cannot say that, then hear the verse that started it all for me. I told you I was going to close in Acts. But I'm quoting this. That's different. It's Matthew 7, 21. Now, you may have heard this many times. I want you to see if you can hear it with the ears that Jesus gave you, not just those magnificent structures on the side of your head. Not everyone says, who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom. But only, it's the important part, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So let me ask you, do you think those nine lepers were doing his will? Oh, praise God, we no longer got leprosy. We know we're right with God because he touched us and we're healed. Could they say that they were doing his will? Because you said that most Christians are those nine lepers. Let me ask you, can you say for certainty you're doing his will? Not better than you. Not by a long shot. In fact, most of you would have problems with the things I approve of. I, I drink scotch almost every day. I love cigars. I especially like to read the word and smoke a cigar. Sometimes two in a day. I never smoked or drank when I was lost. Ever. I get it. That's a real problem for so many people. It's because we've learned to define our holiness by what we don't do. I've learned to define holiness by what we do. Pastor, those things are so bad for your body. Talk to me about your table salt and your refined sugar, and then we'll have a real conversation. I like to read Spurgeon. He was smoking a cigar when he wrote it. I'm smoking a cigar when I read it. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Bonhoeffer. I guess we need not go down that road. If you want to hear more about that, come smoke a cigar at my house or watch me smoke one. I have no compulsion about what you do. 
But let me say this. There is a day coming when you won't be able to say, Lord, I'm holy because I didn't watch those bad things. You won't be able to say, Lord, I'm holy because I didn't use the words that sailors use. You will either be able to say, I did what you told me to do. You hear how active that is? Or you will not be able to say that. James defines sin in 4.17, which we're not turning to. A man that knows the good that he ought to do and does not do it sins. See, we've got this whole thing backwards. We believe honestly in our heart of hearts that if we sit and do nothing for a lifetime, we're right with God. I'm telling you, nothing could be further from the truth. The one man in the Bible who was said to have a heart after God did many things that he shouldn't have done, but he did everything God told him to do. In Acts 26, I would like to bring this to a close. Let's begin in verse 15. Is that okay? Is that okay with you? Well, even if it's not, it's what we're going to do. So you were wise to agree the first time. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand up on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. What you have seen and what I will show you. Salvation is something that happened in the past, is happening to you now, and will happen to you in the future. Revelation is something that happened to you in the past, is happening now, and will happen to you in the future. None of these are like getting a USDA stamp and moving on. I will rescue you. I will save you. From your own people and from the Gentiles, I am sending you to them to open their eyes... And turn them from darkness to light. From the power of Satan. Say power of Satan. Satan. To God. You're either operating under the power of God. Or you're operating under the power of Satan. There is no alternative. Ephesians 2 places you under the spirit of disobedience. Or under the spirit of holiness. Either way. You're, You're one or the other. So how long, how many decades can you operate under the power of God and produce none of the fruit of God? You know, in a time period where the charismatic church is running around looking for a drunken anointing, maybe what we could use is some sobriety. Because while I drink scotch every day, I've never become drunk. I do not do it because the Bible says that's sin. Turns out you can pray over water and turn it into wine and drink it, and it's wonderful. But if you get drunk, it's sin. What has happened to the church that we value feeling drunkenness, inebriated, in the spirit even, but we do not value properly discerning the word and seeing what the Lord says? Show me one time in the Bible where people were looking to get quote-unquote drunk in the spirit. On the day of Pentecost, the men are there And others accused them of being drunk. Do you know what they were not doing? Laying their hands on each other and asking the Holy Spirit to make each other drunk. Now, as somebody who has felt overwhelmed in the presence of the Holy Spirit many times, I'm not trying to limit what God would do with you. I'm trying to say the church is off of its rocker. And you may be off your rocker with them. 
We need to return to something as simple as when he speaks, I obey, and I obey immediately in the first time. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and all Judea and to the Gentiles also. Say Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Judea. Judea. Samaria. Samaria. And to the Gentiles also. The Apostle Paul had an experience with God that radiated out to every place in the known world of his day. How far has your experience with God traveled? Listen to what he preached. Let me ask you if this is what you would say about yourself. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and hear this, prove their repentance by their deeds. Is that what we hear? Can you prove your repentance by your deeds? Can you say, my life is inextricably different and the sin that I said I repented of last week is found nowhere in my life this week? Because if you can't say that, you didn't actually repent. You're saying, you know, maybe tomorrow. I feel really bad about it, Pastor. I know the Lord's not happy with it, but I said I'm sorry, so I believe in my heart He's forgiven me. You know He's forgiven you when you have power over that sin. Until you have power over that sin, do you know what you're doing? You're asking God for a greater measure of His grace, which is power over sin. The grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness has appeared. This idea that because you were a leper cleansed, now you can go your own way is not a biblical one. And it is not what Paul preached. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. When is the last time somebody tried to kill you for your testimony? Did you know that the scripture says, in fact, anyone, anyone, say anyone, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So when is the last time you were persecuted? Wow, it's very quiet, isn't it? If you, if you feel yourself right now slightly inadequate, like, golly, that's, I, that hurts a little bit. Now you know why Jesus said, blessed are you when men revile and persecute you. At least you know you're in the right camp. He didn't call you to get along with everybody. He didn't call you to make it through life without ruffling any feathers. He called you to work for him. But I have had God's help to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind. You're a Jimmy Swagger, David Koresh moron. By the way, I kind of like Jimmy. 
Okay, I don't care whether you do or not. I admire, he's still preaching the gospel. He, he hadn't quit. Jimmy is older than the oldest man in this church. And he still, if, if he went on a talk show and said, I'm a, I'm a crook, I'm a scam artist, they would love him. They'd probably make him a presidential nominee. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. When is the last time your Christianity looked insane to those that were around you? We all want to go to a church that everybody loves. That everybody, I mean, our church is so cool. We take the latest secular song and we play. Everybody loves it. We, we do. We, we have Guinness Book World Records. We bring in uh, donkeys and, and elephants to uh, entertain the people. You think I'm kidding? At Easter, we, which is a pagan ritual, we, we put in high wire acts. We rain down bunnies' eggs from helicopters. We, we bring in superstars, the kind of men that would be idolized in the Roman arenas. We, we do it all for the glory of God. We also give away television sets and cars. Can you imagine sitting and looking at Jesus with a straight face saying, Jesus, we did face painting for you. Okay. Jesus, we had the Power Rangers come and represent you. Jesus, we gave away gift certificates to Starbucks to get people to come into your church because, you know, the whole being raised from the dead thing wasn't nearly enough. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. King Agrippa was king of the Jews. He's actually Agrippa II in history, but we can't go into that now. i just tell you this. He should know better. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a quarter. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa was responsible for installing and removing the high priest in Israel. And he did it frequently, and so did his father as a means to control the people. He put only men in who were like Micah's Levite, the kind that said what he wanted them to say. They had to toe the party line, make sure that we never offended anybody. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time, say short time, you can persuade me to be a Christian? What is it about us that thinks we need to deliberate something a long time? In all of your reckoning, have you reasoned God out? The longer you've thought about it, have you just found more reasons that you don't really have to do exactly what he said to do? Do you remember the first time you read a scripture that said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you were horrified because you thought you might actually have to sell everything you have and give it to the poor? Now we've raised up prosperity pimps that tell us Jesus really wants you rich. It's not what Jesus said, but that's what they said. And you like it because it allows you to keep everything that you want to keep. Your life remains yours. And it's supposed to belong to Jesus Christ. Look at Paul's answer. It's the next verse. 
Paul replied, short time or long, I pray, I pray God, that's kind of old English, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me may become what I am, except these chains. What did Paul own at this place in life? How popular was Paul at this place in life? You know, you read about Paul and you say the great apostle Paul, he was surrounded by controversy on every side. Demas had left him. Hermonides and Philitus had begun teaching things like gangrene. All over, there are, there are six men, six men listed in First and Second Timothy that deserted and walked away. Apparently not every leopard that gets cures, cured of leprosy actually follows up with the kind of saving obedience over a lifetime. So let's, let's just finish this right. I was talking to Bobby in a hospital bed. I'm talking to you seated in a chair. What do you have to do today to be pleasing to the king? What do you know? I was at a table with someone the other night. It was so convicting, cringing. It hurt. Began confessing sin to everyone at the table. So I didn't want to ruin your evening. I just knew that this is the hardest group I could ever have to say this to. I just knew that there's nobody that I would want to impress more in the world. And I feel like the Lord has told me I have to tell you the depth of my depravity and sin. I think he left that table free of the sin. Will you leave this room free of yours? Or do you value prestige over holiness? We're going to begin to worship. I serve a chain-breaking God. You can call me a harsh minister, a fat minister, a bearded minister. You can say anything you want to me except that what I'm saying is not true. And if you believe it not to be true, I'll sit with you anywhere at any time. I'll open my Bible. You open yours. You can bring your friends, bring your other pastor, whatever it is you want to do. I, I have never been intimidated. I like those moments. Because the truth of the gospel is not something that needs to be defended. It's like a lion you can let out of the cage. The truth is you know that what I'm saying is right. Part of you delights in it and it scares the other part of you to death. Because you might not be as right with God as you think you are. And the whole world acts like that's a terrible thing to have to consider. I think it's the very beginning of knowing and loving the Lord. To fear Him. To fear Him in a way that says, I want my every action to be perfect before you. And I'm not so sinful, prideful, and arrogant that I think I'm already there. Yeah. Could you stand to your feet?